Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. The body lies in the middle of Victoria Street, knees folded backwards, arms splayed. At first, it looks like the victim's jaw has fallen off, but as Senior Constable Kiara Louie leaps out of the car and sprints over, she sees the jaw has actually been smashed upward, flattened against the pallet. Kiara reaches for her radio, but she's off duty, dressed in a denim jacket over a flower-patterned dress, no equipment belt. The man lying on the road makes eye contact with her. Stay in the car, she shouts over her shoulder, not wanting Elise to see. Undeterred, Elise unfolds her long legs from the passenger seat and jogs over, carrying the first aid kit from the glove box. Brushing her fringe out of her eyes, she stares down at the dying man. Well, she says, we can't exactly give him mouth to mouth. It's the sort of joke Elise has been making a lot. Gallo's humour is common among paramedics, but after the trauma Elise endured last year, Kiara is worried the nihilism runs deeper. Kiara looks around. No pedestrians, no sign of the car that ran this man over, just a flickering streetlight and a row of shuttered shops, a cafe, a real estate agency, a jeweller's. Only the King George pub on the corner is still open. The chalkboard out the front says, Get schnitt-faced, chicken schnitzel and beer, $10. Call an ambulance, Kiara says. Elise is crouched over the man, feeling for a pulse. You better do it. Kiara grabs her phone and dials Rafa. The dying man is in his 50s, white, beanpole thin, with a sharp widow's peak and sad grey eyes. Elise starts chest compressions. Blood squirts from the gaping neck onto her silk shirt. She clamps one hand over the wound. As the phone rings in her ear, Kiara looks down at the ruined fabric. Elise hardly ever gets dressed up. Tonight was supposed to be special, a chance to hit the reset button. Kiara can't afford to take her partner to a decent restaurant, but she thought a picnic dinner next to the Murrumbidgee River would be nice. A secluded spot where no one would be around to stare at them. A small bottle of sparkling, a tube of mozzie repellent, cheese and salad sandwiches with mud cake for dessert. Kiara imagined kissing Elise on the picnic rug, rolling around like teenagers. She'd hoped Elise might finally tell her what's been going on these past few weeks. As usual, things haven't gone to plan. Jack Heath is the author of more than 40 books for children and adults. Hangman was the first crime thriller in the Timothy Blake series, followed by Hunter, Hideout and Headcase. His 2021 thriller, Kill Your Brother, was shortlisted for Best Crime Novel at the Ned Kelly Awards. And today I'm talking to Jack Heath about his new book, Kill Your Husbands. Jack Heath, welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me back. Last time we spoke, we discussed astronauts falling from the sky and the pros and cons of cannibalism. But in Kill Your Husbands, it's a bit of a change of pace. A relaxing weekend away for Felicity and Dominic, Cole and Clementine, Isla and Oscar, a house in the mountains, no internet, no phones, just drinking, bushwalking and sex. That all sounds idyllic. Truth or Dare is a fairly innocent game when played by children, but for adults, it's a potentially dangerous territory. What's brought this group of friends here and what's the dare in Kill Your Husband? 
Well, they've been brought together just by the fact that they went to high school together mostly. So they are friends, give or take a couple of hangers on. But when you're in high school um, with other people, you tend to have a lot in common with them, right? They are your own age. Um, they likely have a similar socioeconomic status. Um, they are sort of all live in the same area. And then after high school, people tend to drift further and further apart in all sorts of ways. So in, in this book, um, some of the characters have money, others don't. Um, some of them have children, others want to have children and can't. There, there's all these sort of ways they've gone off in different directions. But in a sense, they're trying to turn back the clock by kind of... Um, going on this sort of bonding weekend. But the dare, um, which I would be the first to say is ill-advised um, and not autobiographical, is to trade partners. They um, decide to do a partner swap with the theory that it won't be awkward afterwards because the lights will be turned out so no one knows who anyone else was with. So far, so good. But when the lights come back on, one of the men is dead and no one can agree who he was with. And uh, the killer's just getting started. Now, there are close friendships among the couples, but as is slowly revealed, there's also generous helpings of fear, suspicion and hatred. But how might a swinging weekend in the mountains bring someone to the point of murder? I think probably most of these people were teetering on the verge of murderous rage before the weekend even happened. So the, the swinging experiment comes about in part because none of them is entirely satisfied with how their lives have turned out. But given that in some cases they blame each other for the ways their lives haven't turned out, um, that's uh, the so the swinging isn't the cause of the murder, it's just an opportunity. I don't think that's giving too much away. But I started work on this book 10 years ago at the height of kind of Fifty Shades of Grey mania, and it was supposed to be a, a romance novel about a partner swap. But um, I never quite got that working because ro romance writing is very, very hard. So I, I shelved the idea for years. But when it occurred to me that one of them could be planning to murder the others, <laughs> then I got the tingles. You know, the sense that you get sometimes that something that that would be a really good read. So I started working on it pretty quickly after that. We first met Detective Sergeant Kiara Louis in Kill Your Brother. But back then, it, it was her romantic partner, Elise, who took on the role of private investigator to solve the problem, to solve the crime. So what's happened to Kiara Louie? How has she ended up in the one-horse town of Warrigal? When I had the idea for a partner swap murder mystery, it um, I thought it might be a Timothy Blake thriller, Timothy Blake being my cannibal detective FBI agent from the Hangman series. Um, but in the end, I decided to go the other way and use the, use Kiara, the police officer from, from Kill Your Brother. Um, the central tension between Kiara and her girlfriend, Elise. So they are both natives to the fictional town of Warrigal, New South Wales. Uh, they both grew up there. They both have family there. But in both cases, they have an uneasy relationship with the town. Elise, because she is a bit of a social pariah after a scandal years ago um and Kiara for the the combination of factors that she's a cop um she's part of the queer community there's all these reasons that people are sort of uncomfortable around her but um Elise would love nothing more than to just leave this town behind whereas Kiara kind of wants to save it I think 
in any case, the police work in this book is a bit more realistic than in the Hangman series. I mean, none of the none of the corpses are eaten, <laughs> none of the consultants are um, uh, you know secretly making deals with the devil behind the back or anything like that. So that meant that in this book, it's really the three couples who take center stage. But I think it's really important with a crime novel that justice is done at the end. The reader has certain expectations and I want the reader to have a good time. And I know that crime readers, one of the reasons that they love crime fiction is because in the real world, often there is no justice. But on the pages of a book at the end, all can be revealed and the uh, the the cop can finally lay out all the clues and come to a conclusion. And so um, Kiara is what will give the reader the catharsis in this book, I think. And the story unfolds across two timelines, two weekends away, in fact, the weekend of the murders and also the following weekend when Detective Sergeant Kiara Louie rents the same mansion that is the scene of the crime for a romantic getaway with her partner, Elise. That's an unusual scenario for a romantic escape. Is Kiara Louis multitasking or is it simply a questionable sense of romance? <laughs> well, I think part of the book is that she doesn't quite know. Like sometimes uh, her own motivations are a little bit opaque to her. Sometimes she misjudges things as, as we all do. In this case, I think at first... Um, she wants to take Elise on a romantic weekend away and this heavily discounted house, heavily discounted because it's a crime scene, is just about the best they can afford. And it doesn't occur to her that it will trouble Elise because Elise is a paramedic, Kiara is a police officer. They're not sort of spooked by death in the same way as a civilian might be. So Kiara thinks it will be no problem. This turns out to be an error of judgment. <laughs> Elise does not think that a crime scene is a good place to have a ro romantic weekend away. But so Kiara then quickly pivots and suggests that, okay, actually, I need your help. <laughs> um, we can go together and you can help me with the case because she knows that Elise is proud and sensitive and basically she's trying to sort of rekindle uh, and build the flames back up in their relationship and so she wants to stay with Elise she wants to bring Elise with her but she knows Elise will only come if Elise feels needed um, that becomes one of the points of tension over the course of the story you create great characters in a very short space of time too apparently unimportant details accumulate into something much greater What's essential in building a character, especially when you're talking about an ensemble of characters? And I suppose with time against you, you've only got a certain number of pages in which to achieve this. Building characters is always hard. It was especially difficult in this book, partly because they needed to be all about the same age because they all went to high school together and they needed to have sort of similar body types as well because they had to be interchangeable in a darkened room. There were all sorts of ways that I couldn't differentiate these characters. So instead, I had to make the book very personal. And I mean personal both in the sense that I've borrowed liberally from my own life, but also in the sense that we needed to get a whole heap of inner monologue from each of these characters. So they had to be similar on the surface. Therefore, I needed to highlight how different they all were underneath. And one of the other challenges was that I knew that the killer was going to be 
the narrator of the story and the reader knew that from the beginning. So the, the reader knows that the narrator is the killer, but they don't know which narrator. So that means as we're jumping around from perspective to perspective, I couldn't allow any of the characters to wonder who the killer was because that would allow the reader to eliminate them as a suspect. So as you can imagine, there were all sorts of challenges in writing a book like this, but the challenge was kind of what made it fun to write. And I think that's probably what will make it fun to read as well. In a world where ChatGPT exists, human writers can best compete by digging deep into their own experiences and thoughts and emotions and try to find things that they've never seen written down before, things that no one else has ever quite captured on the page. And so in the case of this book, I kind of went a bit wild on that. I had experience, um, personal experience of postpartum depression after the birth of my eldest son. So I gave that experience wholesale to the character Oscar. Over the course of my life, I've found male friendships to be quite lonely. You sometimes hear trans men talk about this, like after their transition, when they discover what it's like to make male friends as opposed to making female friends, and they discover just how little openness there is and how much competition and bluster and hostility can be a part of even sort of typical male friendships. So I had experience with that, so I gave it to the character Cole. So I tried to give sort of a little piece of my heart to each of these people because I wanted the reader to care enough about them that the reader would enjoy the story, but I also wanted to make them so deeply flawed that when at least two of them come to an unpleasant end, the reader can enjoy that too because no one likes to see bad things happen to good people. Again, justice has to be done. The bad things have to happen to the bad people. Following on from your last novel, Kill Your Brother, we have another locked room scenario of sorts. At that time, I think we spent some time in a septic tank. Can't think of many things worse than that. In Kill Your Husbands, it's an isolated mountain retreat. And for the swinging six, if I can call them that, it turns out to be similarly toxic. Is the psychology behind these closed worlds, these locked room scenarios, something that drives your writing? People love locked room mysteries, including me, and I'm not exactly sure why, but I think it's partly to do with the rules of a murder mystery novel, which include, for example, the fact that whoever the killer turns out to be, the reader needs to have met them relatively early on. They need to have a name and a personality, and at the end, the reader needs to go, aha, it was them. But if you've got a gigantic sprawling city full of potential suspects, when the killer is revealed, um, it can feel like too much of a coincidence if the reader met them early on. You know, if you're setting your murder mystery in Sydney, the reader might be thinking there's what, six, seven, eight million people in Sydney. What are the odds that the barista from chapter one will later turn out to be the killer. It just doesn't seem possible. Whereas when you've only got these six people trapped in this one house and then one of them turns out to be the killer, you don't have to depend on coincidence to introduce them again. I also think it's important, though, to um, isolate them. So it's not about the fact that they're trapped. It's about the fact that they are isolated and that no help is coming. I wanted to build this sense of escalating dread because this isn't the kind of murder mystery where there is a murder 
and then slowly order is restored. I didn't want tension to de-escalate. I wanted the tension to ramp up and up and up. So it begins with a murder, but things pretty quickly get worse. And so I'm always looking for opportunities to create conflict in the story. And so there's plenty of inter-character conflict here, but I thought it would be good to use the setting to create conflict as well. So the weather is bad and there's no phone reception up there and it's cold and it's dark and Every opportunity I had to throw a problem at these characters, I took it because the reader learns most about these characters by how they cope under pressure, which is mostly, in this case, not very well. And alongside this is this very dark humour. I get the feeling you want us to feel just a little bit uncomfortable as we read and then feel slightly, only slightly guilty when we laugh. (laughs) That's exactly right. Guilty laughter is often what I'm shooting for. One of the characters in this book is a a stand-up comic. Um, Her name is Felicity. And I don't know if she's a very good stand-up comic. I have a few friends in the stand-up community. They have strong opinions about Felicity and how she's portrayed in my novel. But I do think something that writers and stand-up comics have in common is that You need to build tension and make the reader uncomfortable and then break the tension. Uh, So without the tension, the breaking isn't very interesting. There there needs to be glass to shatter. Otherwise, you're just, you know, punching your fist through an empty window frame. It's not very spectacular. So I knew that this book was going to get dark and uncomfortable. And sometimes we're talking about the sort of over-the-top darkness of a murder house. And sometimes we're talking about the more uncomfortable, close-to-real-life darkness of uh, an, an unhappy marriage falling apart, you know. And the darker the story, the more important it is to make it funny as well because I want the reader to have fun. That's always my driving impulse. Fun, fun, fun. I My antenna that I referred to before is just always sticking up going, okay, will the reader enjoy this more or less? And so again, in my first draft, anytime I saw an opportunity to put a joke in, I put it in with the intention to take it out later if it didn't work. Um, but I don't think I deleted very many of those jokes, actually. I think... Uh, The result was that you end up with a book where the violence is made more palatable by the fact that the reader knows that on the next page, I'll be sort of giving them permission to have a bit of a giggle at the whole situation. Yes, you certainly have this uncanny ability to make murder fun, which is an unusual talent. But I wondered if that was a factor of your experience in writing for young people. Uh, And now you're simply challenging adult readers too, in a similar way. I definitely know that when I'm writing for children, I need the books to be entertaining most of all. The the kids won't really care if the book is educational. They won't care if it has a really good moral lesson. They won't care that it subverts the genre tropes. They only want it to be entertaining and unputdownable. And so with kids, in a sense, that's a little bit easier than writing for adults because an adult cares about whether something is believable or not. Kids don't really care whether it's believable. They only care whether it's awesome. I've seen adults put down a book because that would never happen in real life, whereas a a kid doesn't seem to worry about that quite so much. But it's also harder to write for children because 
when I'm writing for adults, I can make changes as I go and I can do it purely on instinct. I can go, okay, does this change feel better or worse? And maybe I'll get that wrong sometimes, but as long as my judgment is better that than that of a coin toss, then the overall manuscript will improve because I have to make thousands upon thousands and upon thousands of tiny adjustments over the course of writing the book. Whereas with kids, I can't just ask myself, does this feel better or worse? I have to ask myself, would this feel better or worse if I was a kid and not the kind of kid I was, but the kind of kid who exists now in 2023? And that's enough levels of abstraction that I find writing for children much harder than writing for adults. I do think that my children's writing informs my adult writing in that it drives me to never, ever waste the reader's time again. I think adults are more patient than kids, but I never test that patience. I try to give them as much bang for their buck as I can. Jack Heath, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. I've been talking to Jack Heath about his new thriller, Kill Your Husbands. It's published by Alan and Unwin, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People gift card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.